Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, the DL Triforce meets to discuss the great news of more Linux hardware, but there might be a twist to this discussion. Microsoft is bringing edge to Linux. Is this the death of Firefox as we know it? No, it's not. Is our gaming, in our gaming section, we're going to be talking about Amazon's decisions to join the gaming cloud space. And, and of course, we're also going to talk about our, our tips and tricks and software picks. All this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode 193. You are tuned into the number one video-centric Linux podcast on the planet. Destination Linux is your source for the great discussions on Linux and open source. My name is Michael, and with me today are the two-time Emmy, Emmy Award winners for Best Lead Actor in a Linux Drama Series, Ryan and Noah. Sure. Let's find out what everyone's been up to this week. So, Ryan, what have you been up to other than making silly intro- introduction titles? We're talking about silly. It's, these are facts. We are two-time, me and Noah, two-time okay, winners cool, of cool. Linux drama series. We were the ones giving out the awards, but still. Yeah. <laughs> the point is we won. So, uh, this week, I have been working on a robot kit with my kids. And I did a... <gasps> did you embed you- the Michael AI into it? I, you know, it didn't have enough memory to store the 140 lines of code <laughs> of Michael's brain into it. And That's who knows what would happen, you know, we'd try to get a stool and all kinds of stuff. So I didn't get that far yet, but we did build this. It's an Mbot robot kit, and it's just one of the nicest kits I have ever purchased. It The build is metal. The frame is solid metal. The electronics, the instructions that come with it, the apps that the kids can use on their um, tablets or phones is just first class. It's just a really neat system, and it progressively teaches kids how to program in the software. So at first, it's kind of drag and drop uh, different lines of code. And but it does it one step at a time. So the first thing, it just makes the robot go forward. Then the next thing you're dragging in, turn right. And then it tells you what sections to edit in that code to make it turn right twice or to go forward for five seconds. And so it just progressively teaches you line by line how to get into the mindset of coding, which is you have to tell the system every little thing to do. And I just found it super invaluable. So that video is out there for others to check out. And just had a ton of fun with that. But the other thing is, Michael and I joined the DLNQA project forum this week and had a great discussion with the crew there. And just want to put out to the community, one of the things we're looking for at this point is some lawyers. We're actually looking for lawyers. We're not forced to have lawyers. Uh, to give us some some legal advice on the project from a business perspective. So if you are a lawyer, have a friend who's a lawyer. Uh, or work on projects where there's lawyers involved are willing to volunteer and kind of uh, look at the project and give us some advice on some questions that the group has there from a business perspective. We would love to have you on board and you can get involved by going to Destination Linux Network, clicking on the discourse forums. There's a whole section just dedicated to the QA project there. So if that's you, please come join us. Noah, what has been up this week with you? I, uh, we started our Raspberry Pi for testing. Um, typically after a new Raspberry Pi comes out, we, uh, we leave, leave it sit for a little bit, see how it works in the real world, and then eventually make the transition to the, to the latest one to upgrade for things like Volumio boxes and home assistant and stuff like that. And, um, so this week we started doing what we call the burn in, which is we load all of the software that we use up onto the latest generation of Raspberry Pis. We do four for each one and just let it run and see. Uh, how that works in a real life scenario like do they crash do they burn do uh do some of them work some of them not or there's some software that isn't compatible do the usb interfaces that we use with all of these things do they work the way that you expect them to if there are problems do we need to open bugs or get them fixed or can we fix it in house that all that kind of stuff um and so watching where we are with raspberry pis and then watching frankly my kids play with them and 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 seeing the the the, the kind of leverage that you can get out of these devices that are now sold at Best Buy. Uh, you can go buy an entire kit at Best Buy that has yep. the case, the power supply, the um, you know the SD card, and so it's gone from a hobbyist's project to I would say it, at least available in mainstream mass. And I think that's a that's a milestone that isn't really being celebrated, but it's a really important one. Kids from 
doesn't matter what kind of home they grew up in, doesn't matter what kind of background they have, if they can find their way into a Best Buy, they have the opportunity to learn and play with actual computer components and, and, and explore that technology. I mean, even the robot kit I was talking about is based on yeah. the Ar- Arduino, Arduino mm-hmm. open source hardware mm-hmm. kit. So yeah, I mean, not just Raspberry Pi, but all of these little you know uh, systems on a chip that allow you to have a computer experience at home and very simple and easy interface and lots of different projects from creating robotics, home automation, running server monitoring, all those type of things. I mean, it goes from the complete hobbyist all the way to the full enterprise of things that you can do with these devices. It's quite amazing. What are you doing with these clusters of Raspberry Pis? They're, they're not clusters per se. They're, so we have individual, there's a, there's a few different projects that we use uh, in production environments. So one of the most common ones, I think, is something called Pi Display Cameras. And it's an open, it's a very basic open source project that takes a collection of RTMP feeds, cascades them across a single monitor output, and then displays them. And so we use it all the time where where you have a customer that maybe they have uh, 50 or 75 security cameras, but they need like maybe four or six of them they have to keep eyes on all the time, like the front doors or the back doors or whatever. Or you'll get into situations where there are some places they actually have dedicated security personnel and they need every single camera multiplexed over a series of monitors in the back. And so Ply Display Cameras has been a great way for us to do that. And that allows us to swap the manufacturers, make some models of the cameras out without ever having to revisit the what we call display stations because they don't. Uh, we just change the RTM feed feed. So as long as the next brand of camera supports uh, nice. RTM RTSP video, which any ONVIF camera is going to, um, we're able to swap that out. And then of course things like Volumeo for doing background music and stuff inside of uh, you know hotels and lobbies and stuff like that. Um, those kinds of things. Um, but we need to test them with all of the all of the hardware and peripherals that they work with and make sure that they're going to work for a client. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been doing quite a bit and getting ready for some new changes to the Destination Linux Network website and a bunch of other things. And I actually did a live stream yesterday as of this recording for the This Week in Linux podcast, which I am super excited that that is back. I heard it went 24 hours straight. It was more like five hours, actually. Close maybe. enough. It was, it was a long wow, stream. Wow, you did a five-hour long stream? Yeah, the, it was actually about probably an hour and a half of the show, and then the rest was just hanging out with everybody. Uh, so that w- that was fun. And I probably won't do a marathon streaming every time, but you know, periodically it'll probably happen. Uh, but there is also some really good stuff about uh, frontpagelinux.com has been on fire lately. Like just a yes. lot of cool stuff has been added. There's been stuff from like the history of Linux, the many uh, faces of the file system for Linux that was added for Eric Londo. Uh, Jason Evangelo has written multiple articles on the website, as well as a lot more people has been contributing. And it's just been fantastic. And, any, and also just to let people know, if you're not aware, that if you would like to contribute and write for Front Page Linux, it is open to anyone to contribute content. So just get in touch with us and we will set you up with being able to do that and yeah so front page linux has been is just been rolling on just great recently so i am super excited about it yeah i think the look of the site is fantastic and it definitely draws you in but the meat of it is the people contributing articles having articles obviously on there jason's articles uh, some people say my xenotic article was the greatest uh piece of literature ever written i wouldn't go that far but um, no, I, no, but seriously, the people writing on it are fantastic. The amount of contributions that we're getting are just, they're really thoughtful and current and something that I think a lot of people will be interested in. So check out Front Page Linux. It's part of Destination Linux Network. And I think it has a lot of, the content is just getting better and better every week. Yeah, absolutely. And ch- be sure to check out Ryan's uh, Hemingway level Xenotic article <laughs> as well. It's so bad that they had to go in and rewrite it, but yeah, Hemingway level <laughs> article. <laughs> it's on Oprah's favorite reads list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash DLN and get a free $100 credit 
by going to that URL. And it's also, if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, DigitalOcean is an, a fantastic cloud hosting and VPS provider that makes managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. We even set up that Xenotic server that we just talked about, that fantastic Hemingway level article that Ryan wrote. <laughs> it's about the DLN gaming server for Xenotic, and we use DigitalOcean to make that droplet so you can go out and enjoy an open source first person shooter for free and game with other DLN creator, uh, community members on DigitalOcean Droplet. DigitalOcean also recently announced new features and services such as the Virtual Private Cloud, or VPC, which is available in all regions free of charge. This lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads, which is a fantastic feature. And you can get all this, plus world-class ac or access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with that $100 credit. Like I said, go into do.co slash DLN, and you can use that $100 credit for spinning up a dozen droplets or just use some monster-sized droplets and testing out how much you can do with it for over two, for two months and just try out all kinds of stuff that's available in, in their marketplace or just you know check out the DigitalOcean uh, tutorials and all the great stuff that you can find there. And again, you can get started on DigitalOcean for that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring Destination Linux. So this week in our community feedback, Antares writes us to say, on a recent episode, I heard the consensus that users who preferred proprietary products at least never preferred them because of the license. They simply felt the product was better. I want that to be true, and I think for many people it is, but as someone who is surrounded by Apple fanatics and works in a small repair shop where 90% of our clients are Mac users, I have to disagree. I frequently get the pushback from many sources, however misinformed, that they chose the product they chose because they don't trust things like open source or that they simply wish their experience to be curated, that they never have to worry about potentially using an app, for example, that isn't quality. It seems that religious Apple users are buying into the idea that picking a company to trust completely is the best choice and that thought process continues to AAA third-party software companies uh, commonly accepted in their community. It's not always sound logic, but then again, many things in the real world aren't based in sound logic. Just thought I would share. You guys have an awesome group, and I frequently feel I've learned something more than just related content. Keep up the great work. So Noah, what are your thoughts on this? Because I think that quote comes from you. He's offering a different perspective that he's seeing out there. What are your thoughts? I think that there's always going to be somebody out there. There's always going to be a group of people out there. When I used to go to Microsoft conferences, I would meet the people that were really excited about when Microsoft would release something new, right? This is the newest version of Microsoft and here's the things that they're changing and here's what we're going to get, right? On when Windows 10 came out, I, you know, there's a couple of the people I work with, they were so they were so excited over the fact that Windows has these new cool features that makes it easier to provision Windows 10. Uh, machines, and so I think you. I think what what this guy is getting is he's getting the perspective um, from the Apple fanatics, and I mean to a certain degree, th they're not hard to find, right? There are entire channels, entire communities based around celebrating the technology that Apple makes, and so I think if you get inside of that that kind of an echo chamber, I, I think there are going to be people that you know very much believe, hey, this is the best way to make computers and the best way to use technology. But I don't think that's the consensus from the from the from the vast majority of people out there. I think the the vast majority of people out there couldn't care less about it. Technology to them is a way to achieve a, a goal. It's a way for them to get through their workday. It's a way for them to connect to their family, and they want to do that with the minimal amount of friction as possible. So I have to ask myself then, as a person who founds a company that is routinely asked on 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 a daily basis to give suggestions and offer advice and insight as to how we see this industry unfolding in the direction that we think technology is moving in and how can we help keep them at a very low friction level. I submit to you that the, the, that the tried and true way of open source developed software on average will yield a better quality product with less problems. And if you don't believe that's true, then we have to ask some uncomfortable questions like, how, why is it that Google Chrome is as powerful as a web browser as it is. Why wasn't Microsoft able to pull that off with something like Internet Explorer? They had complete and total control over the web browser. In fact, they went to court and fought about it with Netscape. How was it that Microsoft wasn't able to do that in a proprietary fashion when they had control from the stack top to bottom? Why is Safari not more popular when Apple has control of the stack top to bottom? Why is it Chrome that has become the standard of the web? 
it's an open standard. Everybody can adopt it. Nobody's worried about it being not invented here, somebody else controlling uh, their thing. And so that is always going to have the longest growth long-term over the long-term. And so, um, yeah, I'm sure I, I, I don't dispute that there are people out there that, that, that believe that, Hey, this particular, this particular way of doing things is better than the other. In fact, I would even include us in the open source community. There, there are some of us out there that say, well, this is just a better way. And they're, they're very gung ho. But, but I think when you just take a step back, the reality is that open technology is winning out in the long term, uh, and it's a top-down thing. It's 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 it first took over the server market, then it took over a lot of companies, and now companies are asking those questions: How do we avoid vendor lock-in? How do we stay? Uh, well, know, I think there is this natural lock-in. want for people to kind of feel like they're in a club when they purchase a piece of hardware, and Apple does that best. Yes. So when you're yeah, talking, if, if we focus this down into the Apple ecosystem, it, it's amazing. When I was doing that Apple series on my channel, um, there was something that I was talking about in the videos related to a Reddit post on repairability, because one of my biggest gripes with Apple is the lack of repairability. Mm-hmm. And I was watching a thread of somebody saying, hey, I'm interested in getting the new MacBook Pro, but I'm really concerned if I have to replace the battery, what's going to happen? And the response from the community that was upvoted was uh, a Ferrari owner doesn't worry about cha- his next tire change. And I'm like, well, the difference is the Ferrari owner owner can go change his tires, unlike the Apple laptop in which you can't <laughs> remove the battery. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, though, that they'll come up with an excuse for anything, the fandom so hard that no matter what the company does, even if it's bad, they are for it. They will find a way to be for it or to be like, hey, this is an elitism thing or whatnot. And in the open source community, you're right. There are a lot of there are a lot of fans, but there's also a lot of fans going completely opposite directions right uh, from each other. And I think that's something we're never going to be able to easily replicate is that kind of Apple fandom. I think Linux has one of the biggest fan bases out there, but they're also very different in their perspective of, you know, you name something, some project, and you're going to have this vile reaction from this part of the fan base and happy reaction here. And a bunch of people in the middle are just like, yeah, I just use whatever. So I, I don't know that we'll ever have that in the Linux community, but I think it's an interesting point he brings up. We love hearing from our worldwide community. We have many ways for your voice to be heard. You can send a short email or video that may get incorporated to the show. Send your video links or emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So let's talk about some news that a lot of people are super excited about, and that is Microsoft Edge. You're, yep, everybody's pumped. Microsoft Edge lands Fine. on Linux in October We're all super excited. The wait is over. Finally, we have Microsoft Edge coming to Linux. Just everybody here is excited, right? Everybody? Um, Yeah. Yay, yay. Yay. That's okay. Show of hands, um, who's installing Microsoft Edge on Linux? For those are audio listeners, no one raised their hands. So (laughs) the answer is no one. (laughs) Exciting or not exciting? I mean, it's I'm, it's it's good for the people who are who want it, right? But I don't know. Who, here's who here's those my frustration. Are. No, I'm gonna be honest. Like I'm supposed to say here, I'm supposed mm-hmm. to say, thank you, Microsoft. This just proves you love open source and Linux. And I'm supposed to open my mind. We've forgiven all of your transgressions in the past. This is the new Microsoft. We're so happy. Thank you for bringing this onto the Linux platform. That's mm-hmm. what I'm supposed to say. But in the mm-hmm. back of my mind, that little DOS geek. A uh, guy running around, the devil on my shoulder goes, yeah, but have you done a Windows 10 update lately with Microsoft Edge? Because right. Microsoft Edge takes over your entire screen like a virus, like a virus would, and you cannot exit out of it. There is no mm-hmm. X in the upper corner. There's no exit button. There is nothing there. And then it auto imports your browser bookmarks from whatever browser you were using. Now you didn't click install Edge. You didn't tell it during the installation you want to install Edge. It just took over your machine because you dared update to the latest Windows version. And I think, is Microsoft really that different from the Microsoft of the past? Have we really gone so far past that Microsoft now has learned its lesson about creating monopolies in the browser with Internet Explorer? I don't think they've learned those lessons. But I think they've learned the lesson that open source isn't their enemy and that it makes them more money than it will cost them. I think they've learned that lesson. And I think yeah, well, happy- it's like the Microsoft employee I met in the elevator. I said, hey, Microsoft hearts Linux, right? And he goes, yeah, for our bank accounts. So that right. to me was like, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. 
Um, so I, on one side, excited, but Microsoft Edge specifically and what they've done with it, when you do that, and the only way to exit out, by the way, is control, delete, open your task manager and manually kill that whole process, makes me just, it makes my skin crawl. And so they, they, were, they were making Microsoft Edge. Otherwise, I'd be like, hey, this is great. We have another option. It's going to make Microsoft Office Suite obviously run better because you know they're going to do the same maybe, thing. Chrome maybe, dud with may, Google Docs. Maybe, maybe. They didn't bring, they didn't, they're not including the DRM stuff so that you can play 4K or any of that. So it's, it's, essentially, it's essentially Chromium repackaged with the Edge logo. It's not like... We don't have anything we didn't have before. They haven't done us that big of a favor. They, yeah, that's true. And they also they did say that they were going to make some of those features work, but they haven't yet. And so it's like you know they said that they will be coming, but, but at the same time, I I mean I don't think point, it's worth at what cost. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. In my opinion, it's not worth using. Of course, because it's Microsoft Edge, and I don't have anything, uh, no desire to use Edge anyway. And I say the same thing for Google Chrome, by the way. To be fair. Yeah, I mean, basically, all of those applications have the same thing. It's just another Chromium yay, right? But I, I think that there are some people who are going to want to use it, and, f- you know, fair enough to them. Feel free to do it if they want to. And, and as, far, as far as, like, if the Microsoft Office support is improved for it, you know, more the merrier, I guess. And, you know, that is something well, that does don't matter. don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about improved. Think about Google Docs. No, if you go into Google Docs today in your Firefox mm-hmm. browser and you go to cut and paste, what happens? Nothing. It, it Well, you have to do it with the shortcut. You can't right click because it does. It's not smart. It, it will. It, they can't code it properly so that it works in every browser. It only works in Chrome. It, you feel only like it's like class citizens. Yes. Yeah. So, so if you go into Chrome, you could right click and you could paste. Mm-hmm. But if you're not in Chrome, they make it. Supposedly, it just gives you the regular yeah, context menu yeah. in Firefox. Yeah. So that this is the type of thing I think with is going to happen with Office. Is Office going to work in Firefox? Office 365? Sure, like it does today. Is it going to work much better? Like it'll have features like, I don't know, right click and paste and things. So th- I don't think it's going to be feature rich. I think they're just going to do what Google did with their docs and make it more so than likely. The normal experience that you would expect from it you have to use Chrome and yeah. the normal experience you'd expect from office. You're going to have to use edge and office is a big deal. It's a big deal for a lot of professionals out there. This is a big deal for people to get office 365 or to get office on Linux. A lot of people talk about this. So I think it's going to be bigger than we think it is. I don't think this is going to, I think this is a big deal for Microsoft. I think it will be popular on Linux, not with your everyday users, but with your business and enterprise folks. Yeah. Do you think that there's a lot of business and enterprise folks on Linux that aren't, or do you think that Microsoft is essentially trying to make it available to their internal developers? Well, I think they're going after the development community. That's the only thing they care about in the Linux world is development community and having, again, an ability to, on Linux, have a great office suite experience, which is probably what you're expected to utilize as I am in my enterprise company I work for is to use Office, Microsoft Office products to have a better experience in there. It pretty much guarantees that you're going to be using Microsoft Edge. Now, do, do most people, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but in your experience, do, are most people using Office, the local suite, or are they using the, the, uh, the uh, Office 365 hosted instance? It used to be, at least in the companies I'm familiar with in telecom, it used to be all local. Now it's all 365. Everything's migrated really? to the cloud. Yep. And so it was this- a massive undertaking, but all of them have migrated. But the reason that's important or the reason that matters is because if 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 everything is going towards the way of Office 365 and Microsoft embraces that, then what that tells us is cont- Linux from the standpoint of containers and, and, and servers and Azure and stability and all those things are going to remain critically important to Microsoft. But the actual functionality on the desktop, really what they want out of that is for you to have a really great experience inside of Microsoft Edge. Yep. Exactly. Because then they can reach every platform. Doesn't yeah. matter. And, and so, you're going to pay them to use their services. And, and our future could be very well a big giant splash screen you can't close unless you use Xkill telling you and in your latest update that when you have that installed that, you know, hey, you need to import your all your plugins and those type of things. I, you know, I want to say Microsoft has changed and I want to get on that bandwagon with everyone that's like, hey, quit being mean to Microsoft. They're bringing new stuff and they don't have to do this and all that. Well, they kind of do because they would be left behind if they didn't join the Linux, Linux train. So yes, they do have to do it. But beside that, it's like when you look at what they're doing with their own platform still, like this happened this month. This is not something two years ago that Microsoft did with Microsoft Edge. This is like a month or two ago. 
and it, you're still experiencing it if you update, do your Windows update. Like this isn't a change Microsoft to me. This is the same company that's forcing monopolies down people's throats and monopolizing their product. That's that's what I see. So at the bottom of this, anyways, it says Microsoft Insider. If you go to their page where you can download it, it says we're listening. So that's my point <laughs> is if they're really listening, then stop the nonsense of putting a virus on your own platform so that we don't suspect you're going to put a virus on our platform. That would be so, my first piece of feedback to them. And number two, make sure you don't do anything with the telemetry that would give us suspicion of why this whole thing's going to be a complete pile of garbage, which is what I suspect it could be. And I hope it's not. I hope this is successful. Yeah. If Microsoft Edge is the best browser out there and it gives me privacy and security and all of those things, I'll run it. You heard it here first. But I don't see any sign of that in Microsoft. So just to be clear, I don't think that's what Microsoft. I don't think that's what I don't think that's what Microsoft has promised. I right. don't think that's what Microsoft. They said they're listening. Are asking for. I think what I they know, mean by listening is the telemetry. It's to their customers that are willing to. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> they're listening, whether you want them to or not. But no, but 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 in all seriousness, though, the, the reality is that that this is a company that is trying to deliver the best possible. Well, I don't even know if that's true, but. They're they're they claim that they're delivering the best possible experience to their end customer, but I think to them that means telemetry because that I think there's a view that that's how you get the best information. That's how you build the best yeah, product. It's, it's absolutely proven you, to be true, by the way, because every all that telemetry and the thousands of people testing Microsoft Windows still ends up with them releasing releases that delete everyone's data. The telemetry's been fantastic, Microsoft. Absolutely great job. Good job, Microsoft. Our security advisory this week is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that you want to be using. It can be self-hosted, or you can start by just checking it out on their, on their website at bitwarden.com. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Now, our security advisory this week is about using by other authentication methods. Obviously, uh, in, in a perfect world, we want to have not just one, but two forms of authentication, but sometimes it's not really practical. And where that's probably most true is on the mobile device. You pull the device out of your pocket. You just need to unlock it to go look up a contact or take a picture or reference some information. What you might not think about, though, is what if there was an unauthorized user that tried to get access to your phone? Maybe that unauthorized user had had you in their possession. And so, for example, using your fingerprint or using your facial recognition would be something that would be easy to do because they could just hold the phone up. Or there's been some cases where they've tried to hold up and try and fool the phone with photographs and pictures on a computer and so on so forth. Uh, you don't want to rely on these forms of authentication. Yes, they are convenient. Yes, they are easy to use, but they're also easy to defeat. And so one of the one of the best things that you can do is both on Apple, iOS, and on Android, the phones will automatically, re, will automatically require the password when they restart. And so how that's beneficial to you, how you can use that is uh, you you start to enter a situation where you where you say to yourself, hey, somebody might want to go looking through my phone. That might be going through a border crossing. You might have interaction with law enforcement. You might uh, just decide I'm leaving my house and I just want to, I, I want my phone locked that way. All you have to do is restart your phone. And typically restarting the phone is going to require the operating system to enter in a more secure password or PIN. Um, certainly when you choose that password or PIN, stay away from dates. I see that a lot in the field. People will pick a a date is a password, the date they bought the phone or the date that they got married or the date, whatever. The thing is with the date, you're artificially limiting yourself because we know that the first number is always going, you know, going to be between one and 10 or one and 12. And the second number will be between one and 31. You can figure things out. And the, the more things that you, the more confinement that you put on yourself on picking a password, the less secure it's going to be. Of course, how are you going to remember all those passwords? If you make them truly secure, you're going to use Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that all of us here on the Destination Linux Network use. And by the way, we started using it before we ever asked them to come on this program. We asked them to come on and sponsor the program because we thought that we can start to tell the story of what Bidwarden has been doing for us. And it keeps our passwords secure. You put all of your passwords into the password manager, typically trying to pick one between 16 and 24 characters. 
and you can store those passwords safely and securely. Only you have access to your password vault because it's client-side encrypted and your password, your secure password or your secure passphrase that you're going to use to lock that vault, uh, only you have access to. They, of course, they support uh, second-factor authentication, so you'll be able to secure that vault with both email or you could use, like I do, with a YubiKey to make sure that, that the password vault stays secure. And in that way, uh, you can keep the password for all of your different mobile devices. You can use different passwords for each one, keep them all very safe and secure, then install Bitwarden's easy-to-use mobile app so that when you're not on high alert and you just need to be able to get in, just simply swiping your fingerprint gives you access to all of your all of your passwords. You can get started today, again, by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN using that link. Thanks them for uh, letting up, lets them know that you heard about it here on the Destination Linux show. So again, bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Password managers are a great way to have a balance of speed, convenience, and security when using online accounts. So our big topic this week is really an exciting and fantastic news that we've been wanting to happen in the Linux ecosystem. Well, you all have been waiting a long time. I've been waiting four years for all of this to hit, which is hardware manufacturers making big announcements about Linux being preloaded on their devices. So not just certifying that the device will work with Linux, which is was kind of step one, but actually having on their store page the option to choose Linux-based distro when mm -hmm. you're buying it so that when you get it and boot it up, much like you would have if you bought a System76, you're not going to have to use Windows to install Linux. Rather, you're just going to have Linux right there for you. So Lenovo had a big announcement this week on the heels of the announcement they had with their partnership with Fedora that you can now get Ubuntu pre-installed as well. They said that uh, in Lenovo's announcement that they have a range of 27 devices here that will be available for purchase via Lenovo.com. So that's a heck of a big portfolio of laptops. This includes 13 ThinkStations, ThinkPad P-Series, ThinkPad T, X, X1, L-Series, all of these various devices out there. I think, Noah, you're a biggest fan of X1. That's the ones that I've used in the past too. Uh, you'll be able to get 20.04 LTS version of Ubuntu uh, with the exception of the L-Series, which will have the 18.04 version. This is going to be a phased release. So if you go out there today, you're not going to see all of those options, but they're building it out through 2021. And you can see that it's a very extensive list here. One of the things I thought was interesting is the VP of engineering at Canonical said, Lenovo's expansion of Ubuntu certified devices shows great commitment to open source and Linux community with data scientists and developers increasingly needing Linux for emerging workloads. The collaboration enables enterprises to equip their employees with assurance of long-term stability. So this brings up the big point of, besides celebrating this, because it's fantastic news, that Jason Evangelo mentioned in some of his tweets, maybe even an article, uh, regarding the fact that people are giving him the feedback, you know, this is awesome that we're seeing these choices, but it's all focused at enterprise and developer, and that's reflected in the price of these devices. So even System76, their cheapest device is $900, I think, plus, as far as laptops go. When you look at most of these laptops, they're all $1,000 or more. So what are your thoughts on this? Because a lot of people obviously still are going to say, I'll just go get the $500 Dell or Lenovo that has Windows on it, and then just go install Linux instead. I think if, to a certain degree, if Linux is behind the curve from the standpoint of the, the amount of Linux computers that 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 Dell or Lenovo are going to sell is going to be such a small fraction of the amount of Windows computers that are going to be in demand for a number of reasons that if you're going to start to try to wrap a business model around that, you kind of have to start with the, the, the premium space because you have to be able to charge a premium price so that you can afford to pay to have a developer on staff so that when all of the engineering and research that goes on at Lenovo or Dell or any of these large companies and they go, well, here's the, here's the latest Windows drivers for this, 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 and this, this and then they go hey how's the how's the linux how's the linux team doing that guy has to be able to say well we did some testing and we got this and backported that and copied this or whatever you got to pay for those resources so i think it makes sense to start at the at the premium end community and say these are the people that have the checks i can afford to write a two thousand dollar check to buy a laptop and but i need it to work with linux and i'm willing to do that that's the right place to start when that's successful you can take you can use trickle down engineering and say okay well if it works one of the x with the seven gen x1 carbon which is what i 
have upstairs and have been playing with for the past few weeks. If it works well there, maybe we could scale this up and and apply that to our lower end series or, or and for consumers that just want it for checking their email and editing home videos. So I I think we may get there down the road, but I think this makes sense as a strategy from a hardware standpoint. I think that's a brilliant point that honestly I hadn't thought about that the cost of Number one, training your employees to support the calls that are going to come in when these devices go out is extremely expensive. You have to have developers and testers out there testing these devices, making sure they're working and all this stuff. So you're going to charge a premium because like one of our patrons mentioned, which is what I hear in the community a lot, one of the points making is, well, I don't have to pay for that Microsoft license, so I should have a cheaper machine. But in a lot of cases, they're actually slightly more expensive than the Windows version. And I think that you may have nailed exactly why that is, Noah. Yeah, and I also think that it's it's a great point because of the fact that Lenovo said that they were going to do uh, end-to-end uh, support for web and phone. So they're they're having so the fact that they're willing to do that, it's not just they're putting putting on there. They're also going to do the support. It requires like Noah's point about you know that starting with that level might be easier to do that support. So that once they get to the point of doing more like uh, more affordable, cost friendly or budget friendly laptops, they could actually have already prepared that support to handle that sort of stuff. And I think that is a fantastic point that I haven't thought of either until Noah brought it up. So uh, I think that's pretty much it. <laughs> The great thing, too, is that laptops, unless they're from Apple, do not hold their value. And so this is somebody who buys and sells thousands of devices Mm -hmm. on eBay. Um, If you want to get your money back out of a laptop, buy an Apple device. You're going to get your you're going to get most of the money you spent back, even if the thing's five years old. It's just holds true. If you buy some of these other manufacturers, and I'm not going to name one here because they all make great computers, but they don't hold their value. A year later, they're worth half of what the retail price was for them. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it just allows as as these enterprise devices cycle out in the three year, generally in enterprise three to four year time frame, they'll end up on sites and we'll be able to pick them up far cheaper because they're great machines. So you would be able to get them cheaper then until, like you said, this I, is a big you success. Know, I, I have to tell you, I agree with that with probably nine, 90% of computers that are out there. I don't, I think that's, I think the holding their value though is true of any premium computer. And I say that because if you go look at what a, what a six gen X1 carbon sells for brand new on like CDW, it's like eight, 900 bucks. If it has an I five and eight gigs of Ram, you go and look at that same machine on eBay. That's one or two years old. And they're still six, seven, $800. Like they, they don't mm. drop that much. I, I mean, I, like I, again, the only time I saw XPS a company or- actually pull off what you're saying is mm-hmm. Sony Vios. When Sony Vio was around, Vio actually made a name for itself that mm-hmm. it was collected and the cost of it remained, the value of it remained just as high as when people would purchase it, just like an Apple device has. But I have not seen that with any of the other manufacturers' machines. Now, I will say System76 machines hold their value pretty well. If you go on eBay, because there's such a low quantity of them, they hold their value very well and you you're they're going to get a lot of the money that you put into them back but that's because of the low inventory of them out there in the used market yeah i think it's a great point about sony vios cuz they had the whole the whole reason anything holds its value is branding and marketing if you have mm-hmm. a prestigious brand yeah, that true. creates this whole thing uh, and quality though well but what i'm saying is if you go there's a dis- there's a distinct difference between like what you're talking about like so if you go look at like the latitude lines or even the generic t series ThinkPads, a lot of those you can pick up super cheap. But when you get into like the premium brands, like the XPSs, when you get into the X1 Carbon, it seems to me that those those tend to hold their value at least for definitely two, better years, right? Yeah, they definitely better. hold it better. Yeah, yeah. The premium side also has the branding aspect to it a little bit better as well, because like X1 Carbon XPS, they have a little bit of that thing. But I think and they're all fantastic machines, by yeah. the way. I love the X1 Carbon, and I absolutely love Dell's Infinity Screen on their XPS line. So. I'm thrilled that they're bringing these laptops here. And but yeah, I think awesome. it, it did pose the question of when can we get some lower priced ones? And I think Noah nailed the key to this, which is you will once we prove this a success for where the money's at right now, which is the enterprise developers and businesses. In our gaming section this week, we're going to talk about Amazon now throwing its hat into the cloud gaming streaming service arena, which is starting to get kind of packed out there a little bit. Nobody seems to really have found like the the solution to get everybody really excited about this, but everyone's throwing 
their hat into the arena, at least to try to get involved. And Amazon was particularly interesting to me, Michael, because of the fact that they own Twitch. Right. And yeah. so they have the most popular game streaming service out there where millions of people go to to watch live game stream, competition gaming, all of this. They own that company. Mm -hmm. So they obviously have a very unique ability to do something. Now, they didn't talk about it here yet because it very much looks like it's in kind of a beta. For instance, you have they have an early access you can sign up for uh, to get selected. You can't just go and, and use this service right now. But there's no way they're not going to leverage the ability to stream while you're gaming with this, which would give it a leg up over because a lot of kids today dream of being game streamers right because yeah. there's millions of dollars involved in it now and everyone thinks gaming as a job would be the greatest thing ever although if you talk to streamers they'll tell you not so much but uh that that's the dream anyways and and so their ability to leverage that would give them a huge step up i think over the competition i, I when i first saw this uh, i looked at the amazon luna announcement and i it seemed like a joke sort of but at the same time uh <laughs> april it, fools yeah it seemed like that uh, but at the same time, it does make sense that they would do this because they have Twitch and Twitch is the biggest independent streaming platform, period. Like you could argue that YouTube is bigger because it's YouTube. But at the same time, Twitch is, uh, is focused on on streaming and they are the biggest platform for that focus. So even with YouTube being bigger, Twitch is still looked at as the the main player in that space. And I think that because Amazon has been transitioning a lot of their stuff where they used to call it Twitch Prime, they've switched to change it to Twitch. Uh, they took out the Twitch branding of that. So it's now Prime Gaming. And I think that that's like a way to con like they'll probably do something similar of like merging those things into the Amazon Prime level with this new Luna. And I think that there is some interesting aspects of it. I'm curious of how they make this work. I mean, I don't really care about the cloud gaming space myself because I think it's it, there's a there's so many limits in how they structure them, and uh, you know the, the cost per month plus the cost of the game and that sort of stuff. I don't know how valuable that is, but at the same time, I think it's very interesting that they're doing it. And if anybody is going to be successful in this space, I think Amazon has a very good position for it because of the Twitch thing, connecting those together. And Amazon has been connecting Twitch to a lot of stuff. You can even do like uh, watch parties for movies on Amazon Prime and stuff like that. There's so many things that Twitch, Amazon has been connected. They've been merging together. Well, they definitely together. Very have the cheap devices too, right? So mm -hmm. they, they have the Fire yeah, TVs. They have the ultra Echoes. cheap Kindles. They have the Echoes. I think they have some new device based on, do they own Ring or somebody's got a new yes. drone or something that flies around your house for those who definitely want to give away all their privacy. It's a great <laughs> option. Um, but they announced that this week. But, you know, also on this news that I want to bring up, because I think it's interesting, is you have Project X from Microsoft, which will be their streaming service. But Microsoft this week announced they're purchasing amazing gaming uh, franchise Bethesda with things like Dishonored, Wolfenstein, Elder Scrolls, Fallout, Doom, Starfield, Evil Within, Prey, some of the best AAA games ever now owned by ZeniMax Media, now owned by Microsoft here in a $7.5 billion cash deal. When Microsoft's there buying up the competition and you look at Amazon's announcement for the games they have available it says, explore action, adventure, platform, indie, shooter, RPG, racing, and classic games from Ubisoft, Capcom, 505, and Team 17. And we're always adding more. But that's a very limited list, you know, compared to what, say, an Xbox or a PlayStation or others will have. Even Stadia, look how much they've struggled with Google's name to get a bunch of big franchises onto that streaming service. I don't know. NVIDIA has struggled. Fast? I think it's, I Is think that the issue? I think there is some aspect to that where they're trying to put they're, they're trying to do something that the market's not really ready for. Like the idea is something that people are interested in, but also not to the point where they're like there's so many competitive options now that there are still people who don't have streaming video like they don't have Netflix or Hulu or whatever. And they're still kind of like, you know, they're still having cable TV and that sort of stuff. So yeah, even there that is market. a third of all U.S. households do not have access to broadband internet. 
So I think that's a big thing we don't consider as well, right? We're talking about uh, yeah. everything's going to be streamed, all this content. You have a third of the population that can't even get But that's a timing internet. thing, right? Like these Is companies it? are trying, well, I think so. I think they're trying to make decisions on where they think the, do, uh, let me ask you this. <clears throat> do you believe there's any possibility that we're going to get, let's say 10 years into the future and we still won't have fiber everywhere in the United States? Yes. In the United States, yes. Okay, fine. Maybe not fiber, but some sort of broadband internet. We're going to do it with radios. We're going to do it with fiber. We're going to find a way. Not I think in that 10 these years. Comp- yeah, I really, really don't think so. I, don't, no. I agree with that. Well, you would know better than I would. But I, it, I, it seems to me like that's there's a count there's a there's a countdown timer before everybody is on the internet. Like it seems like that's a foregone conclusion. So we should figure out how to get resources and stuff to work well on the internet. And and if you look. At society in general, I think most areas of business are doing this, yes? They're saying to themselves, we're going to put our phones on the internet. We're going to put our workforce on the internet. We're going to put our products on the internet. We're going to put our, our everything is going to be on the internet. So it kind of makes sense that the gaming space follows that as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I absolutely think they're going the right direction here. I, I don't know to answer your question for those who do have, for the two thirds that do have access to broadband internet why there's this lack of interest in things like Google Stadia and stuff. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's um, the if the Twitch streamers, for instance, don't take it serious, if they're not utilizing it to stream their games, to play their games, then the audience isn't either. You got to look at the people who actually influence the industry, which is why I think Amazon has a very unique ability to take some of the big names in streaming and say, hey, you're going to use our service now to stream your games and to play your games and create the popularity. The question is, will companies like Microsoft and others basically cut them out from their feet because they're buying all the big studios of all the IPs that everybody loves and may not make them available for that service? So either way, the gaming industry, and and as we talked about before, being as big as it is and as monstrous of a cash cow as it is, is certainly heating up to do some interesting things here. I was upset to know that Amazon does not plan on making a Linux-based app, and you will be forced to use Chrome if you want to access it at all within Linux. But if you're on Windows 10 or Mac OS, you get a nice, shiny app. Thanks a lot. I'm canceling Prime. No, you're not. No, you're not. Right. (laughs) Because me neither. As we continue our exploration of the Linux file system in our tips and tricks and software picks section, so far we've covered temp, bin, boot, dev, Etsy, lib, media, opt, and proc. Like this week we're going to be covering slash root. Now, before I can cover slash root, I'm going to back up just a little bit and, and, and reference the home directory. Home directory is where we typically put users' files. But in the case of the root user, the root user is a special user, and so we keep his or her files outside of the home directory. Instead, we place it in slash root. So slash root slash is obviously the the uh, the parent directory. And so that's the root directory. Inside of the actual root directory is a folder called root. And this is root's home directory and where root keeps SSH keys and the authorized keys file and the note hosts and all of those kinds of things. It's also, I find a particularly uh, useful spot when you're first getting involved in a server, you get logged in as a server. It's a great initial staging place um, while you're getting user accounts created and stuff like that. And then you can kind of remember slash root is that's where I have all, I have maybe the install files or the configuration files or the, the database that I pulled in from the old server right before we kind of get started. Much like the, the past few directories that we have covered, slash root is definitely one you can play. And you can definitely go in there, store some stuff in there, see how it works. You'll notice that the stuff that's stored in root because it's owned by the root user isn't accessible to anybody else on the system. And so it's a, it, it, it's a nice secure place to store uh, data. Um, slash root is, uh, is, is definitely one of the ones that you can play with. So uh, come back next week and we'll continue the exploration of the Linux file system. Uh, as if you want to learn more about Etsy Lib Media Opt Proc Boot Dev Etsy, check out one of our previous episodes. Our software pick this week comes from the community, and it is set to help you with a slow internet connection if you have one. So Michael writes us to say, hey guys, I've been watching the show for years, and I've been a Linux fanboy for more than seven years now, ever since Windows 8 came out. My Windows 7 machine started crashing on and BS, BSOD'd, so I had no option but to switch to Linux as an emergency OS. Seven years later, I'm a computer repair guy and in my and an in-home teacher tutor for the older community in my area. My app of the day is LFTP, and I says I've been using LFTP for years. Uh, I live in Australia, and the internet here is still very slow. I don't I don't even have gigabit here. 
My, our ISPs do a slowdown to files over 15 megabytes in size. So to get around that, I need to do segment segmented downloading. 15 megabytes slowdown is just crazy. I'm sorry to hear that. So this yeah. it goes on to say this file size FileZilla is great for parallel downloads, but not segmented uh, like torrents are, and that's where LFTP comes in. You can, it gives a link. We'll have a link in the show notes. And he says, I made a website setup guide to make it super easy. So we'll have a link for that as well. And there's also a GUI t- a tool called SeedSync. He says, I'm, I'm not a command line guy. I just, I'm just a user. So I wanted it the simplest use possible. Literally click an icon simple. I used alias script and it's as simple as D for local download directory and S40 for sync remote directory in segments of 40 per file. So icon, so icon D, uh, enter S40, enter and everything syncs at a maximum speed with no slowdowns. If you have connection problems or slow internet, LFTP is a great workaround. Just like torrents, it checks the file afterwards. So there's no errors. Uh, thanks again from Michael. And also I think this is fantastic. Uh, I, I, this is a great, uh, there's a lot of tools that do segmented downloading. I haven't heard of this one before, so I'm, I'm looking forward to check it out. So a file, t- a file transfer program that allows for sophisticated FTP, HTTP, and other connections to other hosts in a segmented way. So if you're looking for something like that, then check out this link in the show notes. We'll have it. And also go to destinationlinux.org slash picks. We'll have a list of all of the picks that we've ever done on the show. And there's just tons of great stuff there. So go check those out as well. This is really cool. I was not aware of this, but you better believe I'll be using LFTP this week. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think it's fantastic. It really makes you think about um, when you're complaining about 500 megabits per second. Like, I'm not getting my one gigabit. What is wrong? Well, you know, <laughs> other people have to deal with, you know, these things in chunks. And I think this goes back to our gaming discussion. A lot of people do not have the internet to stream this type of stuff. So it's very interesting. Yep. A big thank you to each and every one of you for watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want more DL, become a patron like all of these beautiful faces here with us today. And you get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show. You get to troll Michael. You even get to play Zenotic during the patron show sometimes and be able to one-shot no-scope Noah, which is super easy. You're going to love it. Never happens. Never happens. (laughs) <laughs> and so you can also join sponsors if you want, if you want an alternative to Patreon, Patreon out there. But we hope you will join us live. And also you can check out the Destination Linux Network store by going to dlnstore.com where you can get some swag for them. We have th- things like t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and so much more stickers. And we're even adding some more things coming soon. So check that out, dlnstore.com. It's time for you to join the DLN community. Don't miss the chance to join some our shindig we have the deal in discourse form where you can be a part of the fam if you want more interactive chat sesh then get fl- to our f- get flued to our telegram group finally if you want to play some games and prove you're a goat why do we want people to prove they're a goat then head to the deal in greatest discourse of all form time man we cover this every week on. you know a goat? we're but trying to make is- listen we're trying to- we're trying to make you hip man <laughs> yeah we're trying to make you hip dude You've got to learn these terms. How are you talking to working? your kids if you don't know the these terms? Yeah. Is it working? Am I hip and yellow swag now? Well, if you get <laughs> yes, the terms you are right, hip and yellow swag. <laughs> you are let, yellow swag. I don't know about hip yet. Let me let me let me help you here. If you want more interactive chat, get flued to our Telegram group. <laughs> I have no idea what that means either, but I found it on the internet. <laughs> and also check out our Matrix chat channel. We have that as well. So you can get flued there too if you want to. Or whatever. But also check out the Destination Linux Network website where there's all kinds of other content. You can find all sorts of open source goodness and from podcasts to YouTube channels and so much more by going to destinationlinux.network. So everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Do it, Noah. Do the bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> I never know if it's like I don't feel like the show's not, over not. until you do that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Anyway, <laughs> for patrons, if you'd like to turn your camera on and microphones on, feel free to join us in the post show. So tell me about the Vio, Sony Vio, Neil. You sound like you know a lot about it, and I've always wondered why it died. In the era that Sony Vio was becoming the most popular, you're right that it was a large large part of it was the very strategic branding in movies and stuff. So for example, one of the highest points in the Sony Vio brand history in terms of awareness and being sold was when it was placed into Spider-Man movies. They used it all over the mm. place in there. Oh, yeah. um, shortly after Spider-Man 3, they, the Sony executive leadership changed and SCEA, 
um, Sony Computer Entertainment America, convinced the other Sony um, uh, electronics units that it was more important to 